the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Friends are necessary physiologically, socially, spiritually, emotionally, and particularly when you're going through a crisis. Friends are critical. Now, Job has five friends in his circle of close friends. The first one we're introduced to here in verse 9 is his wife, Mrs. Job. And she speaks up here, and she observes Job's suffering and his pain and his oozing sores and all of this. And she says in verse 9, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Job. Today, Pastor Gary will be exhorting us to choose our friends wisely. In our text today, we'll learn how Job had some friends that offered him very poor counsel and instead of encourage him during his time of crisis, made him feel even more awful. The Bible says that bad company corrupts good character. When we choose bad friends, we'll end up taking some of those bad characteristics upon ourselves. You surround yourself with godly people that will lift you up in prayer and give you sound biblical advice? At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Job chapter 1 for part 1 of today's message titled, Friends and Suffering. Why do people suffer? Why do people suffer? Last week we talked about how there are four subtopics under this question. And the first one is Satan and suffering. What role, if any, does Satan play in my suffering? That was our focus last week. And then also in this book, we're going to see friends and suffering. How can one be a true friend to someone who is suffering? And then the topic of God and suffering, the age-old question, where is God in my suffering? And then finally, my life and suffering, how can I get the right perspective, my personal suffering? So today we're going to look at subtopic number two. We're going to be looking at friends and suffering. How can one be a true friend to someone who is suffering? We're going to see here Job's circle of friends. He has five. He has his wife, who is unnamed in the book. We will call her affectionately Mrs. Job. And he has four other friends who are mentioned by name, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. 
Now, Elihu is not mentioned until chapter 32. He, we find out he's there the whole time, but he doesn't say a thing because he's a younger guy and he defers to the older, quote, wiser men. So he doesn't interject anything until chapter 32. So we won't get to Elihu until later. But for the time being, we're going to look at his wife, Job's wife, and his other three friends here. And we're going to, we're going to see how the people closest to Job tried to make sense of these tragedies... And they offer various words of advice to Job. Not always the best advice. Let's look here together. Chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 7 down through verse 13. Verse 7 says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful souls, uh, sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Okay, again, this is only because Satan got permission from God to afflict him in this way. And verse 8 says, And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. It's, by the way, this is just, he's using a tool like a shard of pottery to just kind of bring some kind of relief to these sores. Maybe, maybe because they were itching or maybe he was trying to lance them. Who knows? But verse 9 says that his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. I think the shards of pottery feel better than this. Well, verse 10, he replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Verse 11, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, which tells us he was just a short man, just a Shuhite, okay? All right, come on. It's early, I know. Go with me. And so far, the Joe Namathite, for you old-timers, when they heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him. Because they saw how great his suffering was. I think all of us would agree that we all need friends. Friends are important in life. And uh, we all have friends to various degrees. By that I mean on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being acquaintances and 10 being best friends. We probably in the course of a lifetime have hundreds of acquaintances who rank you know, in the 1 category. And on the other hand, probably in the course of a lifetime, the number 10 of friends that we have, probably we can count on one hand. One or two best friends, probably all that will ever happen in the course of a lifetime. But all of us, I think, can agree the importance of having friends, whatever the degree from a scale of one to ten. We need relationships. We need friends. God has wired us this way. It was good. He he recognized uh, when man was created, God said, this is very good. But then he also noticed that Adam was alone. He said that was not good. And so thus he then knit together Eve and, and the understanding of just companionship and the importance of friendships and that we cannot live isolated lives. Interesting, some studies have been done about the importance of relationships and friendships. One of the most thorough research projects ever done on the subject of friendships and relationships was done several years ago by a Harvard social scientist who tracked 7,000 people over the course of nine years, all of them living in Alameda County, California, And as a result of studying just the impact of friendship versus isolation, the report ended up producing this information, quote, the most isolated people were three times more likely to die sooner 
than those with strong relational ties. And in their study, they actually said that people who had bad health habits, like smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, and alcohol use, but still had strong social ties, lived significantly longer than people who had good eating habits, but who were socially isolated. Translation, you will live longer if you eat Krispy Kreme with friends than Brussels sprouts alone. That's just a fact, all right? From this research here. But isn't that interesting? It's like people who even didn't really take good care of themselves physically, if they had a good circle of friends, outlived people much more than those who had good eating habits but were socially isolated. Another report that was done several years ago that was published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, they took 276 people who volunteered to be infected with the rhinovirus, which is the virus of the common cold. And these 276 people were then studied after they were deliberately infected with the rhinovirus. And JAMA reported the results, quote, those with strong relational ties were four times better at fighting off illness than those who were more isolated. These people were, those who had strong social ties, were less susceptible to colds, had less virus transmission, and get this, and produced significantly less mucus than the more isolated subjects. <laughs> so it is true. Friendly people are not as snotty as unfriendly people. <laughs> it's just a medical fact, friends. Now, come on back, because I mix snot and Krispy Kreme in the same breath. But listen, come on back. So we can all appreciate that friends are necessary physiologically, socially, spiritually, emotionally, and particularly... When you're going through a crisis, friends are critical. Now, Job has five friends in his circle of close friends. The first one we're introduced to here in verse 9 is his wife, Mrs. Job. And she speaks up here, and she observes Job's suffering and his pain and his oozing sores and all of this. And she says in verse 9, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? What a charming woman she is. The kind of girl you want to bring home to mom and dad. She says, look, I see you in your misery. And you know what you really need to do? You just need to curse God and check out. Why don't you just die? Now, you know, she's gotten a lot of um, heat for her comments over the centuries. St. Augustine labeled her, quote, the devil's accomplice. John Calvin called her, quote, a diabolical fury. But in all honesty, I call her a woman in pain. She's a woman in pain. You know, I know that this book is entitled Job, and it's written about her husband, and he's the one who is specifically the target here, and, and, and God has allowed Satan to afflict him. But let us not forget that this dear woman has just buried 10 of her own children, too, and she's a woman in pain. She's experienced tremendous grief having to go through the funeral for 10 of her own children along with her husband. And while what she says is certainly not encouraging, certainly perhaps not even appropriate. I think all of us at some point in our lives can look back and realize that in the midst of our own pain, we've probably said some regrettable things. I think she's perhaps one of the most misunderstood women in the Bible. And I think probably we need to cut her some grace. Because if you've ever regretted saying some things rashly because you've been hurting, then you can identify with this woman's pain a little bit. And she said something here that wasn't really appropriate, but perhaps we should give her some grace because she herself is suffering over the loss of 10, all 10 of her children. That said, 
I want us to look primarily at the other three friends out of the four guys uh, in Job's life here. We'll get to Elihu later. And there are these three guys, they, they start out doing some things good, and then they end up doing some things bad. So we're going to look at what they did right first. We're going to look at what they did wrong. And then we're going to put it all together and learn three important things for ourselves about how to be good friends to people who are in suffering. So for those of you taking notes, here's what Job's friends did right. First thing they did right, look, glance back at verse 11, when it says there that Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, when they heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. First thing that they did right was that they came to him when he was suffering. They got together, they had heard the news, and, and they, they got together and said, you know what we need to do? We need to go to Job right now. We need to drop what, we, what we're doing, we need to stop what we're doing, and we need to go take care of him and minister to him. And so they dropped everything that they were doing to go be with their friend. Listen, folks, suffering doesn't come by appointment. All right, When you hit a, a moment of crisis in your life or some unexpected moment of suffering, it's never planned. I mean, by definition, that's what a crisis is. It doesn't, it doesn't come knocking ahead of time. It just suddenly hits you. Which means that if we're going to be friends to people who are suddenly impacted, we need to also suddenly drop what we're doing and go, and go help them. And that's what they did right. Second thing they did right was that they, number two, they empathized with him. Look at verse 12. It says, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. You ever seen someone who's been through something so horrific that they just look, they even look different. And they come upon Job and he's got sores and he's, and he's shaving his head. He's just miserable. And they, they hardly recognized him. And they tore their, their clothes, which was a sign in the day of, of grief. And they throw dust on their head, a sign of mourning as well. And it says here that they wept. He says they began to weep aloud. And you know, Romans 12, 15 says that a true friend mourns with those who mourn. King James says, weeps with those who weep. And they take this moment to identify with his pain. Now, they can't understand exactly what he's going through, okay? Because they're not in his shoes. And as much as we might have similarities in our suffering, we should never assume we know exactly what somebody is going through. I think a, a problem that some of us do with good intentions but is not good to do, is to say to someone, I know exactly what you're feeling. I know exactly what you're going through. So, for example, if someone loses their father, their father dies, and you've lost your father, for you to say, I know exactly what you're going through, I know, we know what you mean. You mean, I lost my dad like you lost your dad. But the fact is that that person lost a unique relationship with their father that you, you don't know exactly what they're going through and the uniqueness of that relationship. And they don't know exactly the uniqueness of your relationship with your father whom you lost. So we, we need to be careful of saying things like, I know exactly what you're going through. Because every situation is unique. Every painful moment is unique. Every crisis by itself can sometimes be unique. So what they did do well, though, was they just wept with him. And the Bible says, again, rejoice with those who, re who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So it's appropriate when they laugh, you laugh with them. When they cry, cry with them. They empathized with them. They did that well. Number three, something else they did well, was they spent time with him. In verse 13 it says, And then they sat on the ground with him, 
for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They just plop themselves down in the dirt with him. And they're just going to be there with him. And it says, for seven days and seven nights, they said nothing. Now, out of this story, and again, this is the oldest story in the Bible. Out of this story, besides the creation story itself, but out of this story comes a practice now today in Jewish homes. When someone has lost a loved one, and you're going through a grieving process, friends will come and do what is called sitting Shiva. To sit Shiva, Shiva in Hebrew means seven, means you just come for seven days and you just park it there and you just bless them by your presence, but also with your silence. The danger is we always think we have to say something and we always think we have to explain something and it is sometimes best to just bless someone with your presence and not say a word. Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble by what we say, even though we mean well. Now, defer to them. Some people in their suffering and grief may not want other people around, so give them the space they need. Some people need to mourn and to grieve alone. That's the way that they deal with it, all right? But if they're willing and open to just have you there, they're modeling for us this wonderful example that sometimes the best thing we can do for someone in crisis is just to be there for them without offering any advice or asking any questions or giving any explanations as to why. Just to be there in silence. And by the way, I want to say this to you tenderly, to some of you who have been going through something and you've thought that God was silent. And you've thought, why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't it that it seems that God cares because he seems silent? And it could just be that in the anguish of your soul, God is sitting Shiva with you as well. In Proverbs 18, 24, it says, A man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And the Bible says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Sometimes in his silence, he's simply there in his presence to minister to us. So, these three guys do three things well. They came to Job when he was suffering. They empathized with him. They spent time with him. And they start out really good, all right? But then they open their mouths, all right? And then the story completely radically changes here. They end up showing by what they say just how ignorant and foolish they are. All right, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, um, if you... Let me get the quote right. He says, better to keep your mouth shut and let others think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> all right, and these three guys are going to remove all doubt. And everybody's going to see here in a moment just how foolish that they are. It would have been better for them just to sit there and say nothing. But then they open up their mouths and as a result, they, they express many inaccuracies and misconceptions about God. And they have this overarching belief you're going to see come out in their conversation. They basically believe that Job is suffering because there's something wrong in his life and that God is punishing him. And so as a result, they repeatedly urge Job, come clean with whatever's going on in your life because that's why something bad is happening to you. And so they offer some wrong advice here. So now we're going to shift to what they did wrong, Okay. First guy we're introduced to is Eliphaz. Go to chapter 4. We're just going to skip through a few chapters now to see uh, just a little bit of what they say to him. 
in chapter 4, we're introduced to Eliphaz. And here's, for you note-takers, here's what Eliphaz basically is going to say. He's going to say to Job that Job must have sinned, and that's, and, and that's why God was judging him. In chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he said this, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? In other words, you're not, you're not innocent, because that's why you're perishing. Must be something wrong in your life. He says, Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Okay, now, by the way, that last little bit that he says there, there's a kernel of truth in that. And, you know, even the New Testament says, Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We talked about it last week, that sometimes, sometimes, the suffering in our lives we bring on ourselves through our sinful choices. But it is never appropriate, it wasn't appropriate for Eliphaz, and it's never appropriate for us to assume that someone's suffering is the direct result of sinful choices. It certainly was not the case with Job. Job was an upright man, blameless, shunned evil. Okay, There wasn't a sin issue going on here in Job's life that he deserved this. This is a cosmic thing happening in the heavenlies that we know. Job doesn't know. Eliphaz doesn't know. And so Eliphaz just kind of assumes here there must be something sinful in your life. And that's why you're, you're going through all this. If we want to be a true friend to somebody, even if that's true, we should never assume it or say it. Leave that up to God. That's not our business. Our business is to come along with some comfort, not judgment. Comfort, not judgment. In this case, is a very judgmental thing to say, and, and he's even wrong at, at, at saying it. But the problem is that in those days, they believed something called the doctrine of retribution. And even in Jesus' day, his disciples were believing it. We're going to see in a moment how he had to correct them about this. And the doctrine of retribution basically said this. You're familiar with it, even if you don't know that's what it's called. It basically goes like this. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. That's what a lot of people believe today. You know, if, you, if you're really good, you know, good things will happen to you. But if you do bad things, karma it's going to come back on you. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. And that's where Eliphaz is in his ignorance. He's saying, you know why this is happening? You're, you're, something bad is happening to you? There must be bad stuff going on in your heart and in your life. In John chapter 9, we see that Jesus' own disciples get rebuked for believing this kind of a thing. In John 9, first three verses, it tells us that Jesus comes upon this man who was blind. And his disciples say to Jesus, Lord... Seeing this man blind, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was their question. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we're more obsessed for the cause of someone's suffering than we are being an extension of healing and comfort in their lives? Shame on us. Shame on the disciples. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's got to be some sin going on somewhere in his life. That's why he's afflicted with blindness. And Jesus corrects them. And he says, neither, neither this man sinned nor his parents, even though we're all sinners. What Jesus is saying is this did not happen as a result of some sinful choice in his life. Stop thinking that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Jesus says, neither. But this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then Jesus healed him. So the things that we go through and the afflictions and the diseases and the, and the grief and the bad things, again, in large part due to a fallen world in which we live. We live in a fallen world. This is Satan's playground. 
And as a result of the fall of man, sinful things happen in this world. We should never be judgmental like this guy and think that if something bad has happened to you, it must be because there's sin in your life. That's not true. That's not true here. That's not true in a lot of cases. And so learn from what he did wrong. Now learn from Bildad. Friend number two, go to chapter 8. In chapter 8, Bildad says some things here. And for you note takers, basically now Bildad gives an explanation for why Job's children died. He basically believes that Job's children must have sinned and that God was judging them. As we read the book of Job, we can't help but be overwhelmed by the pain of Job's story. Job was a righteous man, yet God allowed him to endure tragedy upon tragedy, taking Job to the bottom of existence. Job's friends and even his wife encouraged him to turn away from God, yet Job remained faithful to his Creator. Through every trial he faced, Job kept his eyes fixed on God, and God rewarded him for it. His story now stands as an inspiration for us as we too endure hardship. God knows what you face today, and He is by your side. He's providing the strength you have to keep moving forward and is wrapping His arms around you in comfort. We may not know what God's plans are, but like Job, we can trust that He's in control. We'd love to pray with you as you move forward in your own life circumstances. Please give us a call at 703-771-1500. You can also connect with us on social media by visiting our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Find links to all of these at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're so happy you tuned in to Cornerstone Connection today. May God bless you richly today for your faith in Him. Pastor Gary's teaching and Job will resume next time right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.